welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. All right, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to find them. If you don't, there are black uh, pew Bibles and table Bibles. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke. My name is Micah, if we have not met. I am donning the new bling and uh, gear for Sarah Grove's new album. If you didn't know, she's got a new album coming out. Concerts this Saturday, Friday night, Friday night, 7 o'clock. Tickets still available. Um, uh, Cedar Valley, there we are. And rumor has it, Kirby might be singing, right? Maybe. Yes. So you should go just to see that, all right? Um, uh, Yeah, so Luke Luke chapter uh, 17 And we are in a series called Lost in Translation. Um, We have been working through some passages in Scripture that are often hard to interpret or hard to hear or hard to sort of get your hands or head around. Uh, We have talked about uh, a number of interesting topics. We've we've covered ground uh, related to women in ministry and women in the church. Paul has some interesting things to say about that in the, the epistles we've talked about. We talked about Deuteronomy 18 and God's sort of uh, encouragement to Israel about the spoils of war and what to do with them, particularly when they are women. That's a fascinating one. I would encourage you to go back and read that passage. Uh, we talked about predestination and election and how that's used in Paul. And last week, the essence of God uh, as, as it relates to gender and how we talk about God. Uh, is God more masculine than feminine or uh, how do we really make sense of that? And so this week, I'm very excited. Uh, I was doing a little practicing this morning, as I do, and I was walking in from the parking lot, and I was just like, man, I'm just so excited about today. Like, just kind of pumped. So uh, I, hope that, I hope that you are. are. Are you excited to be here? Anyone? Yeah, okay. All right, good. It's good. Um, I have some personal um, investment in this passage or this idea that we're going to talk about today. Um, I'll share just a little bit about that in a moment, but I want to set it up by, I want, I, I want to play an audio clip for you of a song that really just sets the table for where we're going this morning. And I'll, I'll just warn you, it is really, really bad music, okay? So, this is DC Talk <laughs> covering the one and only Larry Norman, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. Roll it, friends. Here's the chorus. All right, that's enough. That's enough. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. Give it up for DC Talk, guys. How many of you actually owned that album? Raise Raise them high. Be proud. Come on, a couple of you. All right, yes, yes. 
DC Talk, there's no time to change your mind. The sun, S-O-N, has come and you've been left behind. The question that I want to talk about this morning, friends, is where in the world does this theology come from? Where does a belief like that actually like, come from and does it find a home in scripture? And how does it produce such bad music? <laughs> so, if you have your Bibles, uh, Luke 17, I'll ask you to stand, if you will, and we'll start in verse 20. It says this. Once, on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Some translations say, it is in your grasp, or among you. Then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running after them, for the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage, up to the day when Noah entered the ark, and then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down and get them. Likewise, no one in a field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tried to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. Here's where it comes. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in bed, in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Verse 37, where, Lord, they asked. And he replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. Thank you, Jesus. That's really clear. (laughs) Pray with me, if you would. God, as we come together uh, as your church, Uh, as the people um, who bear your name in the world, at least this little quirky community of people, I pray that uh, as we turn to your scriptures and your word that you would open them to us, that uh, we might see you for who you are. I pray, God, that your spirit might speak words that we need to hear uh, and that whatever is said, whatever is done, whatever is sung, God, that it would be uh, for you and for your glory. Um, that as we gather, you would, be, uh, you would be pleased to be with us. So I pray this in your name and by the power of the Spirit. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so this morning, I want to ask the question, is this passage about the end of the world as we know it? You guys remember the REM song? It's the end of the world as we know it. Yeah. Uh, is that what this is talking about? Because a lot of people, when they read this passage, and um, they're... You, you all know the books that have been written about this particular uh, ideology. And evi- I was, I've learned that there were actually some before the Left Behind series that may have even been worse that were called The Thief in the Night. Does anybody remember these? Some of you have watched some of these videos. They're, they're very uh, they're alarming. And, uh, and so people read this passage, and this is often what is taken, that what Jesus is saying is essentially that, listen, you don't want to be left behind. So uh, make sure that you get on the right side of the train or the right, on the right train or on the right side of the tracks or whatever the metaphor is so that you're not left behind when Jesus comes back and the rapture happens, which we'll be talking about next week in, in detail. 
This is the part of the sermon where I confess to you that I actually have taught this doctrine and belief to junior hires. Can you believe that? <laughs> it's not funny. It's actually not funny. Um, I was a junior high, uh, junior high youth pastor right out of college, and um, you know, I, I'm sort of a go big or go home type of fella, and so I thought, you know, like what else would junior hires want to know about but Revelation? So we just tackled it. So we went for it. Um, and, and then, and not only did I do it once, but I've, I did it twice. I've done it to a group of senior hires here in Minnesota, some of whom are here today. Um, to witness what turns out to be a very, very long theological journey for me, from one place to another. And, and I think for us, uh, a testimony to the grace of God on their souls, that they're still, they still believe. They still believe. Um, so... I want to ask four questions this morning as we unpack this passage in Luke. And I hope that, I think that these are sort of uh, building blocks for really how to understand this. Uh, and, and again, uh, I've said this before in this, in this series, but I'm one person and this is my best effort on really how to understand this in context. And you can disagree with me. That's totally within the realm of reasonable. Um, and I would be glad to sit down and talk more about it with you if that's of interest to you. So four questions. My hope is that... Uh, they begin to shed light on this passage on just exactly what Jesus was getting at. And I want to I try to persuade you that it cannot mean what many think it means. That it's not about the end of the world as we know it, but that it's actually about something more important than that. Um, so the first question is this. What is the kingdom of God? Right? The, the, the passage opens and the teachers of the law and the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, what is the kingdom of God? Or tell us about the kingdom of God. And so if you're going to read this passage and understand it, I think you have to understand what this or this, this idea, this phrase means. 68 times this shows up in the New Testament, um, the kingdom of God. 31 times the kingdom of heaven shows up in Matthew. Matthew uses the kingdom of heaven pretty much um, uh, all throughout, almost synonymously or, or sort of one-to-one with the kingdom of God. So almost 100 times this word or these, this phrase shows up and I would argue that it is the one dominant motif or idea that Jesus talks about in all of his teachings when he was here on this planet. So if you misunderstand this, then you run the risk of misunderstanding Jesus. So it's not really that big of a deal. Here's what it's not. It's not heaven after we die. When we say the kingdom of God or we say the kingdom of heaven, for many of us, myself included, for a lot of my life, I thought this is heaven after we die, which is some sort of disembodied evacuation for those who believe in Jesus somewhere else, sometime in the future, right? Do you know the song, I'll Fly Away? I'll fly away, Lord Jesus, I'll fly. Terrible theology. Like, really great tune. Love it, right? But It is not about heaven after we die. That is not what the kingdom of heaven means. Um, It's not some faraway place disconnected from this world. If you follow the arc of the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament, from, from the Torah to the writings and the prophets, there is this theme that sort of runs throughout it all, which I would articulate as this. The return of God to Zion, or the return of God to Jerusalem, or the return of God to God's people. And this is something that the Israelites and the the Jewish people were consistently asking about. When will God return to Israel? When will God put the world to rights? When will God come back and restore and repair and renew all that is broken? When will God do what God always had in mind for the world? N.T. Wright says this, uh, one of my favorite New Testament authors. He says, 
We know from Josephus, who was a writer of this time, that the revolutionaries, the the Jewish revolutionaries, in the last century before the disastrous Roman-Jewish war, took as their battle cry the slogan, No King But God. Presumably, they thought, they knew how God would exercise that kingly rule. Probably, they imagined themselves having some role as divine agents. But we should not doubt that God's kingdom denoted the long-awaited rule of Israel's God on earth as in heaven. This is what they were waiting for. The widespread assumption today that the kingdom of God denotes some other realm altogether, for instance, that of heaven to which God's people might go after their death, was not on the first century agenda. The idea that we would be evacuated from this world and that this world would be done and done away with, we would all go somewhere else, is completely foreign to the Bible. That's a shocker to me. I mean, when I first started reading about this and being challenged with this, I was like, really? That's all I was ever taught. That the point of the gospel, the point of the story of Jesus, was about heaven after we die someplace else, some day else. And I want to submit that actually the kingdom of God doesn't mean that. It means something far different from that. Maybe you could say it this way. When Jesus refers to the kingdom of God, Jesus is speaking about a place here where the hopes and dreams for, of God for creation are real. Where what God desires and desired all along, shalom, peace, harmony, flourishing for all creation, is an actual reality that's happening This is what Jesus comes to inaugurate, begin, and ensure. The kingdom of God. The rule and reign, the hopes and dreams of God happening here on earth as it, for crying out loud, the one prayer he taught us. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? Do we think he was joking? Do we think that he wasn't talking about earth? No, that's exactly what he meant. That's exactly what he was praying for. It's exactly what he ensures and inaugurates by his death and resurrection. So when you begin a passage like this in Luke 17, and he starts with the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is like this, or they're asking him what is the kingdom of God like, you have to begin there. So this is building block number one. Jesus comes and engages in a conversation about this, and we have to understand what he's talking about. And most assuredly, it has nothing to do with the end of the world as we know it. Right? Delete Kirk Cameron from your memories. Okay? (laughs) Just send it away. If you're at the thrift store, don't buy the Left Behind books. Because they're all there. Which should tell us something. (laughs) Secondly, what is the Son of Man? Right? Jesus begins with a conversation about the kingdom of God, and then he starts talking about the Son of Man. So what is the Son of Man? And for a thousand Bible points, we have to go back to the source to really understand what the Son of Man language is. Does anybody know where we first hear this idea of the Son of Man in Scripture? Who? I heard it over here. Come on, Ken! Don't be shy! Packers! Uh, go Packers, everybody! I saw a couple Packer fans. You guys got hammered last week, by the way. Just saying. So, what did you say, Ken? Daniel chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel is a book that many would, would argue Daniel wrote while on uh, some kind of trip. It's really, it's really bizarre, and it's really hard to understand sometimes. Um, but the, the idea of the Son of Man 
is, is rooted right smack dab in the book of Daniel. And it's really this idea. Starting in verse 13, says this, In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, Yahweh, and was led into his presence. So the son of man is, is this figure that is sort of connected to and with Yahweh. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Daniel 7 tells the story of these four great sea monsters, uh, which are, are symbols of sort of these empires that would rise up and oppress the people of Israel, right? Babylon, the Medes and Persians, the Assyrians, and the Romans. The Ancient of Days defeats the beast, and one like the Son of Man comes on the clouds or with the clouds of heaven, which is basically just to say in power with God, and he's given power and authority and dominion over all the kingdoms of all the earth and all the peoples, and it's a kingdom that will not pass away. So this is the idea of the, the Son of Man. And if you're a first century Jew, you love the Son of Man. This guy's awesome because he's the cat who's going to come with the Ancient of Days to execute judgment on the people who are oppressing you, right? If he's coming on, on the clouds, you know he's with God and he's given charge over the kingdoms, then Rome and anyone else who might oppress you has just gotten served notice. Like he's going to open up a can on these people. I mean, this is good news for you as this, this Son of Man character. So the Son of Man language is always drawing back to Daniel chapter 7. And that, again, is tied to the kingdom of God, the hopes and dreams for creation. So the Son of Man is one who's given authority, glory, dominion, power over the nations of the earth. And if that's to happen, then judgment is coming to any and all nations who stand in the way of Yahweh. All right? We track him so far. Kingdom of heaven, Son of Man. What in the world do Lot and Noah have to do with the conversation? If you keep going in Luke chapter 17, we get Lot and we get Noah. What's with these guys? Why are they in there? I want to ask the question, and I think that helps us understand, what do these two people have in common? What do Lot and Noah, the story of Noah and Lot, have in common in Scripture? In the Scriptures, both of these stories serve to illustrate what happens when creation and humanity gets ahead of steam in the direction that is opposite of God, or goes in a direction that is against the hopes and dreams of God. So both stories are example of God's judgment then which always comes after significant warning. We talked about this with Romans 9 in the potter's house, Jeremiah 18. In Noah, you have all these people going along, eating, drinking, marrying, doing these things, and then without warning, it's as if God is holding back the rising tide of sin and brokenness, and God can no longer hold it back, and without warning, this judgment comes. The same is true with the story of Lot. The same kind of language, people eating, drinking, buying, selling, doing whatever it is they do, but essentially, it's that which stands against the ways of God in the world and sulfur rains down on the city and judgment comes. Both are examples of judgment that comes on unsuspecting people who are living in such a way, get this, with a head, building up a head of steam in a direction that is anti-Yahweh, that is against the ways of God in the world. So hold on to this idea, Right? unsuspecting judgment that comes to a people who are heading in a direction that's against the hopes and dreams of God for creation, that's heading against the kingdom of God, that's heading against the idea of the promised land, where this would all happen in real time on the earth. Are we tracking so far? Now, 
the last piece of this puzzle. This is, where, this is where people might say, like, okay, interesting, Micah, but you still haven't convinced me that this doesn't have to do with the end of the world as we know it. You really haven't said anything that would convince me of that point. And the key, I think, comes in the last thing that the disciples say to Jesus in verse 37. Does anybody remember what the, the question that they ask him is? He's, they say, in verse 37, where, Lord, they asked, right? Remember, uh, I tell you on one night, two people in a bed will be taken, one will be left, one woman will be grinding, two women grinding, one uh, grinding grain, one will be taken, the other left. Where, Lord? And he replies, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. What in the world has just been said? What's up with the vultures? Here's how this worked. The Roman Empire was in power. When Jesus rolls on the scene, and, and the gospel writers, even, even when the gospel writers were writing this, many would argue that the Romans were still in power. So Rome was in power, and they would often flex their muscles to show their might and power to those whom they ruled. So Rome would essentially, uh, and, and they did this to keep them in line, to squelch rebellions and crazy people who had the ideas of overthrowing the empire. And we know this from history books. Josephus and others tell us on a single day there were thousands of people that were rounded up and crucified on the hills of the places where Rome was in power. This is not a, this is history. Outside of the Bible tells us this. And it's as if to say, this is what happens when you mess with the empire. This is what happens when you poke Rome, the, the, the sleeping giant. This is what happens when you stand against what Caesar is up to. And the interesting thing was, it was totally arbitrary and totally random. The Roman Empire would roll into your city and your town, and they would round up people randomly, as if like two people were in a field, and one of them would be taken and one of them would be left. As if like two people who were sleeping in a bed, one would be taken and one would be left. And what would happen was, the people who were taken were not on a one-way ticket to paradise, they were actually on a one-way ticket to their own death. So they would round up all these people, and then they would put them on display for all to see. This is what happens when you mess with Rome. Have you seen the Hunger Games? Yet you can't, you can't stand against President Snow. You know, if in, in whatever uh, uprising in Sector 11 or whatever it's called, what do they end up doing? They go and they terrorize the people in the other districts. As if to say, this is what happens when you mess with the empire. So these people would be rounded up, crucified on a hill, and then they wouldn't bury these people. You wouldn't give them a proper burial, but they would put them in mass graves. So they would take all of these people who stood against the empire, and they would round them up, they would kill them, and then they would put them in mass graves. And to a Jewish person, this is unbelievable. This is, you would never do that. You honor someone in death, a proper burial. And so families would go looking for their members. And how would they find them? Vultures circling over. Fascinating. What has Jesus just said? The teachers of the law come and ask him, when is the kingdom of God coming? Which is to say, when is the Son of Man coming with the Ancient of Days to kick out the Romans, those who oppose and stand against the ways of Yahweh? When is this going to happen? They want to know. And it's interesting that this problem 
isn't just 2,000 years ago, but maybe here today, everyone seems to think that somebody else was the problem. Everyone in Israel, and especially those who represented the temple and the religious structures, they all assumed it was someone else. They all assumed that it couldn't be them. They were the chosen ones. They were the holy ones. God was on their side. But we know from the Gospels and other sources that by this time, the temple and all that it stood for, the high priest and the whole priestly line, was completely corrupt. They were making deals with Rome in order to uh, uh, taking bribes and making deals to increase their share of the pie and their position. They were a pawn in a giant game of thrones. So the people and the structure, the high priests and the temple and Israel, the people and the structure that was supposed to be the center of God's plan to redeem and restore all that God made good had become corrupt. They were supposed to be a city on a hill and a, a light that could not be hitting, a blessing to all of humanity. This is why, by the way, Jesus ransacks the temple when he comes in and he, throw, and he throws the temple to, to shreds. This is why Jesus continually gets in trouble with the religious leaders. Because when you critique a system that implicates people in power, they start throwing stuff at you. And they may even kill you. So, Jesus in Luke 17 has turned on the lights in some ways. And what he comes and brings is a warning that yes, the Son of Man is coming. Yes, the Ancient of Days is coming. But those in the crosshairs of God's judgment is not Rome. It was the temple. And it was the very people who were supposed to be who God invited into this, pro- this, this story of being a light on a hill, a city that couldn't be hidden. supposed to be a blessing, supposed to be this group of people who were about redemption and renewal. And you only need to read the prophets to know that this was missed sorely. They hadn't become a blessing and a city on a hill, but rather they became Egypt, the very place that God led them out of. And so Jesus begins a new exodus. So, if I'm even close in Luke 17... So what? Interesting, Micah. Big deal. A couple of thoughts. One, as I close, it seems to me that God is very serious about the hopes and dreams that God has for creation. For us, as one of the churches of Jesus in the world, I think it serves as a reminder that God is about redeeming and restoring and renewing all things and that God has invited a group of people into that process of enabling that movement and action in the world, which is a huge responsibility and honor, as well as a weighty reminder and the possibility that if we don't do that, if we get in the way of God's good work of redeeming and restoring and making all things new, that we are not immune from correction. And that correction often comes just when those who, th- just, just at the time when we think we know who's in and who's out, who's right and who's wrong, who's headed in the right direction and who's headed in the wrong direction. So I think it's an interesting reminder. And I would say, in closing, one other implication of this. It comes in verse 21. Jesus says, The kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, Here it is or there it is. Because the kingdom of God is within your grasp or within your midst, he says. 
this beautiful reminder, this flash of hope in an otherwise kind of ominous text, Jesus tells the religious leaders that you cannot nail down the kingdom. You can't observe it like it's something you can control or manage or use for your own good or your own power or your own position or privilege. But it is within your grasp. It is within your midst. It's something that you can participate in as a humble recipient. It's a river that is flowing that you can get in on where it's going, but you cannot divert it and you cannot stop it. It's too big, it's too strong. The love of God is that big. So I guess I would just offer that this morning to us. Maybe there's a warning. Maybe there is a, a, a light that gets turned on where we stop for a moment and say, God is passionately pursuing and about God's hopes and dreams for the world, which is universal flourishing wholeness and delight, which is peace, shalom. This is the kingdom of God, and God will stop at nothing for that to happen. And we have been invited into that, this unbelievable gift to play a part in that. And it is available. It is here. It's present. It is within your grasp to get in this river and to participate in what God is up to in the world. So, my friends, I guess I would just say, for us as a church, something to think about. For me as an individual, something to think about. I'm going to offer uh, just a, a moment of silence. Um, John, Mark, and the band are going to come, and we'll close with a song or two. And out of silence, actually, Chris is going to read um, a passage from, uh, that kind of deals with this, this idea of the kingdom and what it means to participate in it. So, if you would... Uh, Pray with me. God, this morning, um, we gather in this place seeking to know you more, wanting to understand the scriptures that you have given to us as a gift, this word of God. And I pray that as we listen and think about and struggle and wrestle with Uh, this passage from Luke's gospel, these words that Jesus spoke. God, that you would remind us of who you are, of what you're up to in the world, what you have invited us to as your people. And God, that we collectively, as a community, as a sacred community in the world, would align ourselves to your hopes and your dreams for creation align ourselves and our hearts to the kingdom of God and that each of us in our own role of uh, our own part in that would be reminded of who you've called us to be what you're calling us to and so God I pray in the next few moments of silence that you would speak to us that you would communicate that you would draw us near to you invite us out of Egypt and into the light into the kingdom into more and more and more of who you are The point of the resurrection is that the present bodily life is not valueless just because it will die. What you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, 
building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, and loving your neighbor as yourself. Those will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. Friends, as we close, uh, I've asked Ed to read a passage of scripture that um, the book of Revelation is this beautiful image, this beautiful picture of what Jesus ensures by his resurrection, what is coming. Um, So I'm going to ask Ed to do that. If you have any need for prayer, uh, we have a prayer team that's available. They'd love to pray with you, for you, pray a blessing over you. Um, So know that that's available right over here. So this is from Revelation 2. It's from the book of Revelation. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne... And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look. He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. May the grace and peace of God find you where you are, and may may it fill you and send you out. Find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awakening Community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.